You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Good evening, church, and happy seven years of being a church. Uh, You better be clapping there in your own homes. No one's clapping here. Again... You know, all the glory to God, definitely, you know, this church has been through many ups and downs, and uh, we've seen people join us and seen people leave, but God has been faithful in sustaining this church for these seven years. So again, starting from just a basement Bible study group to uh, now a full-fledged uh, church, and we praise God for the many ways that he's grown us and provided and preserved this church. Uh, even throughout this pandemic in the past year and or so, right? Like we've seen God growing our church. Even then, uh, we we have new faces in our life groups because people are coming and joining us to and tuning in with us on online services. And even even in in the areas of giving, as as uh, Deacon Jeev just shared with us, right? People are are giving, and and God is utilizing this ministry for His kingdom work here in Ontario. So keep praying for this church and continue to partner with us as we endeavor in the, in, in the days to come, the months to come, in the years to come uh, uh, in God's kingdom. We are going to jump back into, uh, into our study in the Gospel of John, so go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 3, John chapter 3, and we'll be reading from verse 11 to 15, John chapter 3, verse 11 to 15. For the past few sermons now, we've been discussing a lot of fundamental truths of the faith, everything from regeneration to irresistible grace to the classic total depravity of man, and I hope these sermons have been edifying to you and been challenging your own faith, growing you in your own faith. I know it has been for me even as I prepare these sermons, and if you still have questions, by the way, Please, please, we have options for you. Please join us for first groups. Our, our dear elder Joel does a great class on the basic doctrines of the faith there. So join us for first groups in that if you have those questions. Or if, if you're not already plugged into a life group, join a life group and we can discuss these sermons throughout the week and dive deeper into God's word. But if those two are already an option or not an option to you, go ahead and message us, my, myself and the other elders, and of course the rest of the leadership in, in this church, and we would love to answer those questions for you by God's grace, of course. Hopefully you have your Bibles by now. Please stand with me as we give reverence to the reading of God's Word. John chapter 3, from verse 11 to 15, it says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O gracious God and heavenly Father, we glorify you. We declare your holiness amongst our people, O God. Lord, as as I bring your children before you, we, we come humbly asking that you would meet with us, asking that you would teach us again this evening. As 
Brother Jeeva has already prayed, Lord, I pray that you would remove any distractions, remove any hindrances, any stumbling blocks in our hearts and in, in our minds that may deter us from truly believing your word, truly listening to your spirit. Please do not allow us to grieve your spirit this evening. And God, I pray that you would lead us into your truths, that you would feed us, O oh God, as we are hungry and desire you this evening, O oh Lord. God, use me as your instrument of peace once again. And pray these things in Jesus, your mighty name. Amen and amen. Tell somebody the title of my sermon this evening, The Responsibility of Man. The Responsibility of Man. You may be seated. As I mentioned, we've been going through a lot of hard truths, some fundamental doctrines of the faith in these past few sermons. And I think the number one concern that I hear or, or the number one hurdle that I, I've, I've heard throughout these sermons or throughout these, as we discuss these fundamental truths, is concerning the topic of human responsibility. And the question that I often hear, and specifically worded in this way, what about free will? What about free will? It's often followed up with, don't we have to choose God? And, and don't we have to do something in regards to, you know, the work of salvation and, and, and choosing to love God? This question often arises whenever we talk about God's sovereignty and his sole work, monergistic work of salvation, his effectual, and his effectual grace to save uh, the people he's uh, predestined to save. But I would argue that oftentimes when this question on free will is asked, it's not asking with a biblical perspective in mind, because oftentimes our definition of free will is a definition from the world rather than Scripture. And let me explain. If our definition of free will is self-determination, meaning that we have the ultimate authority, the, the complete autonomy in the choices that we make and the preferences that we have, then I would say you've left God out of the picture. This is a definition of free will that takes God out of the picture as the sovereign ruler and creator of this universe, as a God who declares an end from the beginning, as a God who, who sways the hearts of kings, as a God who, who has plans and purposes for his creation. If our definition for free will is self-determination, meaning we're the ones who gets to decide where we go, what we choose, our preferences, our identity, everything, then we've left God out of the picture. Again, it, this is a worldly definition of free will. God is demoted so that man is promoted to having the ultimate say in, in our future, in our choices, in our, in, our, in our existence, and our identity. It's why people can choose to abort the unborn. It's why people can choose to mutilate their children to the gender of their preference. It's why people can choose to celebrate a sin for an entire month without consequence because they removed the holy God out of the picture. And that's not the kind of free will that we should be arguing for, Christian. See, that definition of free will is biblical in a sense, but in the sense that it was the lie told to Adam and Eve in the garden. You will be like God. You will know for good and evil. You'll be able to choose for yourself between good and evil. But the fruit of that deception is that humanity fell and our nature was radically corrupted by sin so that we could only choose what is evil rather than good. See, that's the lie that humanity has believed ever since the garden, free will. 
that we can, like God, be able to determine for ourselves our fate, our purposes, our identities, what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, without consequence. And yet, as, yet we as Christians seek to meld that kind of definition of free will with God's salvific work. And it doesn't work that way. God put us, or God put into the motion his salvific work because left alone, left to our own devices and our own desires, our will will, will always choose sin apart from him. It doesn't matter how much self-determination you have, you could not determine to save yourself. See, the free will that the Bible speaks of is in John chapter 3, verse 9. Just a couple of verses from our passage this evening. It says in John chapter 3, verse 19, sorry, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Because man is radically corrupt, totally depraved, our preferences and our choices are self-serving, prideful, only seeking to do what is evil and never choosing what is good, what is God's good. So there is self-determination, there is autonomy, there is personal preference, but it's all rooted in our sin and headed for more sin. And because man is fallen, apart from God, our hearts are disposition in a way where not only do we choose sin, but we want sin. Again, we love the darkness, but we always hear it, right? Love is a choice. Well, guess what? We chose to love sin, love the darkness. In our depraved state, we chose to love darkness rather than the light of God. Well, Pastor Ian, that doesn't really sound like free will if we're only capable of doing sin and, and following our flesh. You're absolutely right. It doesn't sound like free will because the Bible says that as a result of our sin, we are slaves to it. Jesus himself said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Slaves don't have a choice. They do whatever their masters tell them. And apart from God, our master was sin, our flesh, our ego, our pride, our greed, our lustful desires. But here's where real free will comes from, where real choice comes from. When God regenerates the dead man's heart, when he replaces the heart of stone, takes it out, replaces it with a heart of flesh that is dispositionally only able to now or choose God, a heart of flesh that can now choose God. That is, or rather the, even the good of God, that's free will. When God sets us free and raises to life the dead man that was enslaved and dead in sin, only able to do and choose sin so that now he can choose righteousness, the righteousness of God instead, that's free will. That's real choice, real options given to us, freedom to choose between the good and the bad rather than to be solely enslaved to sin. See, the biblical definition of free will is when the human heart is free from the bondage of sin and is able to choose and prefer the righteousness of God. That's what free will is. It's not about autonomy or self-determination apart from God. That's more sinful thinking. Biblical, biblical freedom of choice is having the freedom from sin so that we can choose righteousness instead. 
It's why Jesus says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's why Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 17, he says, Romans chapter 6, verse 17, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Regeneration to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. There's free will. And all of that starts at God's work of regeneration. Now, in that free will comes the topic of tonight's sermon, the responsibility of man. Because though God regenerates our hearts, allowing us to then choose righteousness, choose him, as we talked about last week, conversion comes after, and we are responsible for that. That's what Jesus talks about in our passage as he draws another illustration from the Old Testament for Nicodemus. And what I want to do for us tonight is expound for us the things that we are responsible for as human beings according to Scripture. This will in turn describe for us how conversion looks like, of course, how after God's work of regeneration takes place in our hearts. And my hope for us tonight is if you are in the middle of that work, if the Holy Spirit has already been opening your heart to God's truth and God's ways and God's word to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that my hope is you would completely then entrust yourself to God, completely take up the human responsibility that you have and believe in Jesus Christ. Remember, this is what this whole series and this whole gospel of John is about about, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, we might have life in his name. My hope is that you would take up the responsibility that you have as a regenerated person in Christ. And for us who are already believers, I hope this sermon would serve as a reminder of your position before a holy God, and the beauty and the joy of your salvation granted to you by the mercies and grace of a loving God. My hope is that by the end of this sermon, it is clear to all of us our part, our responsibility in God's work of salvation. So let's jump into our passage. Everyone say, jump. Our passage picks up in the middle of the the deep theological discourse between Jesus and Nicodemus, the Pharisee. If you remember from the previous verses, Jesus had just finished shattering the Pharisee's worldview revolving around a works-based religion. Nicodemus, who was wanting to see the kingdom of God, talking about, uh, that, that's talking about a reconciled relationship with God, a right standing, forgiveness of sin, acceptance into his kingdom. He gets told by Jesus that you must be born again, or rather, born from above if you want to see the kingdom. This illustration of being born again, or born from above, is the illustration of being born of the Spirit, God's work of regeneration, as we have been talking about. And similar to how we contribute nothing to our physical birth, Jesus is saying we don't contribute anything to our spiritual birth. Again, this leaves the Pharisee who was used to doing something for a right standing with God, for righteousness, completely baffled by this notion. Nicodemus is finding it hard to believe all this that Jesus is talking about. And Jesus knows this. And so he addresses this in verse 11 of our passage. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus is talking about the testimony that he brings as the Son of God, the heavenly truths that he just shared to Nicodemus. But Jesus recognizes the Pharisees' doubt, his unbelief. 
Jesus goes on to say in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is calling Nicodemus out again on, on his ignorance. If this teacher of the law could not understand or accept the basic metaphor of being born again, how much more the other heavenly truths, the, the other secrets of God that Jesus had to share? Again, this is why the doctrine of regeneration, of being born again, is so fundamental to the Christian faith because everything else is built atop of it. And if we miss it, we'll be no better than Nicodemus who studied scripture all his life, studied all the laws and all the passages, yet missed this crucial point. Now let me ask you, if you were Nicodemus and you were accused by this rabbi from Nazareth of being ignorant of God's word and his truths, how would you respond being a religious, great religious teacher in Jerusalem? Probably not in a very Christian way, right? If, if that were me, maybe, I'd probably respond by saying, what do you mean I won't understand these truths? What do you mean I, I don't get it, right? I, I'm a teacher of the law. I, I studied at Tyndale, right? I, I, I studied scripture, memorized passages. I, I had Google, right? Like, all of these notions pointing to our own uh, intellect and our own wisdom. And I'm sure Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, who were, who were known for their pride, would have wanted to defend himself in a similar fashion. But Jesus beats him to it. I love this in verse 13. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As if predicting what, what Nicodemus would say in defense, Jesus makes the statement that obliterates any notion of human wisdom or intellect, any argumentation. He shuts down the argument. He says, only the Son of Man himself has ascended and descended from heaven, and therefore only the Son of Man truly knows these heavenly things, these heavenly truths that he was just talking about. No amount of study or memorization and human wisdom and effort could surpass the knowledge of the Son of Man, the Son of God, who testifies according to what he actually has known and has seen, having come, having come down from heaven himself. Only Jesus truly knew and comprehended these spiritual truths. This was like God uh, talking with Job in the Old Testament, right? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the world? Jesus shuts down any notion that Nicodemus could argue back with his human intellect. But here comes some grace from Jesus. He gives his final advice, his final admonition to Nicodemus, again, in the context of the Pharisee and his worldview, in words that he would understand. He says in verse 14 of our passage, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. See, just as Jesus knew Nicodemus' context, his heart, where he was coming from, the desires and the questions that was yearning inside of this Pharisee, even the ignorance and the unbelief that this teacher of the law had, I think Jesus knew something, else, something much deeper. I think Jesus knew that the Holy Spirit had already worked regeneration in this Pharisee's heart. Why else would Nicodemus risk everything, his reputation, his authority, his honor, just to meet Jesus in the cover of night? Jesus will later say, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Why else would Nicodemus then come? Or in, why else would Nicodemus hear these truths and wrestle with these truths being about being born again? 
And why else would Jesus in this final statement call Nicodemus to believe if God had not already regenerated the Pharisee's heart and enabled him to, to, to now have the free will, or the choice, as we talked about, to believe in Jesus. And what we see in the rest of this discourse is Jesus explaining what it means to believe. But it starts in this personalized example that Jesus gives to Nicodemus in this illustration from the Old Testament with Moses and the serpent, something that the Pharisee would have, again, understood, something that he would have, would have read ever since he was a child. Now, before we get into that, that uh, illustration, I want to point out the first of the things that we are responsible for according to Jesus in this passage. One of the first uh, things that we are, responsible, we are responsible for as men. The first is that we are responsible for our unbelief. We are responsible for our unbelief. Notice what Jesus says to Nicodemus in, well, if you go all the way back to, even to verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know or understand these things? Or in verse 11, you do not receive our testimony. Or verse 12, I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. He doesn't excuse Nicodemus' ignorance or unbelief. Jesus actually calls him out on it. And that's the first thing that we are held responsible for, accountable for, our unbelief, our ignorance of the things of God. The, re the reality is, because of our depraved state, our sinful nature, we are without excuse in our unbelief. The Bible is very clear. Our unbelief is not a result of ignorance of God's truth, but rather in our depraved state, we suppress the truth of God, actively denied, whether consciously or subconsciously. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 22, it says this, Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What that means is the reason for an unbeliever's ignorance is unbelief, and unbelief is rooted in our sinful nature, which actively suppresses the truth of God. So no one can argue at the end of the day, oh, I didn't know. Paul even goes on to say in that same passage, verse 19, for what can we know about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul talks about general revelation here, the reality that all creation declares the majesty of the creator. From the intricate design of the smallest cell to the vastness of cosmic laws that hold our universe together, all of it scream an awesome creator. But depravity causes man to deny all of that. If you've ever had a conversation with a staunch atheist on these matters, they will bypass and throw out all reason and logic just to deny the existence of God. They suppress the truth of God. And as a result, Paul says in that passage, verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's where unbelief comes from. And that is why we are held accountable even in our ignorance of God's truth because our sin got us there. Our sin brings us to a place of unbelief. 
Now, this is perfectly illustrated in the reference that Jesus gives uh, of the Old Testament regarding Moses and the serpents in the, in the wilderness. Let's take a look at that passage for a minute. If you have your Bibles, turn to Numbers ch chapter 21. Numbers 21, verse 4 to 9. It says this, From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord, though he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, notice in this passage how the people in their impatience and in their grumbling began to rebel against God and Moses. They said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in, in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. It's, I would find the journey of the Israelites in the wilderness always interesting because it's like they have amnesia or, so, or something, right? They always forget the many things that God has done for them. In this case, they're talking about they have no water. Well, God just cracked open a huge rock so that water filled the entire canyon. Did you forget about that? God brought them to springs of water. Did they forget about that? And they go on, they don't have any food. God summoned manna from heaven so that they could have food every single day that the entire time that they're in the wilderness. Did they forget about that? In their sin, they actively denied the goodness of God, the blessings of God, all the, all the ways that God had preserved them and provided for them in the wilderness. They forgot how God gave them water when they needed them every single time. They, they even treated, when they say, um, we loathe this worthless food, they're talking about the manna, the miraculous food that God provided for them. They loathed it. They actively denied the goodness of God. And as we are called to repent. And how repentance looks like? Well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 to 11 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. This is what genuine repentance is to produce in us, a fear of the Lord, a hatred towards sin, a zeal, a longing for righteousness and the things of God. I would argue that the first fruit of someone who has been truly regenerated by God is a heart of repentance, a realization of their wrong and a desire to get right with God, a deep need for God. John even says in, in his first epistle, if we say we have no sin, if we're still in denial, we deceive ourselves, and the truth, of, and the truth is not in us. If that's not there, if, if repentance is not there, a recognition of sin is not there, I would question the legitimacy of the conversion. 
Because again, that faith is built on the foundation that we've recognized our sinful position before a holy God. We are called to repent. Again, repentance is the recognition, the, the confession of sin to God, agreeing to the charges of what sin deserves. It is the, is the declaration of the tax collector who stands afar from the presence of God, who understands his position before a holy God and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. For us who God has called, and God has regenerated our hearts, we are responsible to repent. This is God's desire for his children, for his people. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. He's talking to the church. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God desires for his people, those he's regenerated, to repent. Jesus calls Nicodemus to this, and he calls us to repentance as well. Understand the importance of this because there are a lot of churches out there that teach salvation without repentance. That you could have a relationship with God and, and Christ and you just keep living the same way. Not a genuine uh, life change taking place. You don't need to repent or, of sin in order to be a believer. And please do not be deceived. Why do you think Jesus came and hung out with sinners in the first place, right? Jesus didn't socialize with sinners so that they could feel acceptance. He socialized with sinners to call them to repentance. Luke chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus even says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It is our responsibility to repent, to recognize our sin and turn from them towards God. Again, I believe repentance is the first fruit of a regenerated heart because you're now you're being able to see how really sinful you are and how you need a Savior. And a true conversion means that you are willing to turn away from your sinful lifestyle Just in, in order to... to, to to express the genuine grief, the genuine uh, godly grief that we read about, it results in a repentance of salvation. Now, the last responsibility that Christ gives to Nicodemus and to us in our passage is, of course, the responsibility of our belief. Our belief. Verse 14 of our passage says, and, Moses, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Similar to how the Israelites in the wilderness had to look to the serpent hanging on the pole to be saved from death, we too must look to Christ hanging on the cross to be spared from eternal death. The act of looking at the bronze serpent in that, in that Old Testament passage was an entirely act of faith. Imagine if you were the Israelites during that time in the wilderness. You rebelled against God. God sends these poisonous serpents to punish you. Now you're, you've come to repentance. Now you'd think the easiest thing that God could do to get rid of these snakes is, or, or to get rid of the situation is to get rid of these snakes. Similar to the plagues of Egypt, right? Or the frogs came, Pharaoh's heart changed, and God got rid of the frogs. Or the locusts came, Pharaoh's heart changed, and God got rid of, God got rid of the 
locusts. So you'd think that God would act in similar fashion, but what we see is that God does something completely different. He gets Moses to create a bronze snake, something that would have even been considered even pagan to the Israelites back then. He'd placed it on a pole, and the people were given the responsibility to just look at the thing and be healed. It was both so simple and outrageous at the same time. But that was the point. That's the comparison that Jesus was drawing on in regards to salvation. All you need is faith. Simply believe. In the other Gospels, Jesus even equates it to childlike faith. A faith that simply looks to the provision that God has made for our salvation. It wasn't asking them to do anything but to simply look at that bronze serpent. And, and in terms of Nicodemus, to look to Christ, the Son of Man, on the cross. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Notice that in that Old Testament passage, notice that God didn't require the Israelites to look from a certain distance at this serpent on a pole. Or a, or a certain angle, or a certain time of the day, they just simply had to look. The Hebrew word there for look is nabat, to behold, to gaze upon. It denotes a deep understanding, a recognition of what it is that you are looking at and why. And similarly, the responsibility of belief that we have is that it calls us to look at Jesus to behold him, to understand why he was raised up on the cross, to perceive that he is the only way for salvation. It doesn't require us to be at any certain right standing before God or, or, or position before God or righteousness before God. We simply need to believe, to look to Christ and understand why it was necessary for him to die on the cross and to place our faith in that reason. Nicodemus would have understood the reference again. He would have understood that this is what Jesus was trying to get to him. His responsibility in the matter. Simple, but outrageous to a man who was used to works and a works-based religion. All he had to do was look on the Son of Man and believe. And that is our responsibility as people who have been called by God to look and believe at the provision that God has made for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. The righteous, spotless lamb that was slain for our sins on our, our behalf, who died the death that we should have died, who lived the life that we should have lived, so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to a holy God. It's, recon it's, it's the recognition that Jesus is enough. That looking to Jesus is enough. It's submission to God's way of salvation, not requiring our good works, but simply to look to Christ and believe. It's as we talked about last week. Faith doesn't mean that you bring anything to the table. Faith is an exclamation that you have nothing to bring to the table, in fact. That it's all on God that your hope, that your reliance for salvation and a life eternal and freedom from sin is 
solely in the work, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is our responsibility to believe. So three things that we have, that Christ says that we are responsible for, he points out in our passage. We are responsible for our unbelief, our repentance, and our belief. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we close this evening. Now what's interesting is that this is the last time that we hear about Nicodemus in the rest of our passage. He disappears for a while and only actually reappears after the crucifixion. In fact, you probably even saw the crucifixion. Remember, he was part of the Sanhedrin, the religious elite. He was probably part of the people who tried Jesus in that mock trial. But we don't hear anything from him until then. And I cannot help but think that during the crucifixion, Nicodemus recalled, remembered, the words of Christ to him this night. He remembered how he, how Jesus told him that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus saw this prophecy, this word, fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He realized the necessity and the truth of what Jesus was saying. That in him, as a Pharisee, he could do nothing to save himself. Despite all the, the, the laws that he abided by, the dietary laws, or the cleansing laws, uh, the scriptures that he memorized, how many sacrifices he made throughout the year. Despite it all, he realized at that moment that he could not do anything to save himself. And the only person that who could save him was now dying at the cross for him. I believe Nicodemus looked to Jesus that day, looked to the Son of Man raised up like the serpent that was raised in the wilderness. Because as we read later in John that Nicodemus comes out of hiding. He publicly declares that he is a follower of Christ by, by offering to, to offer a burial place for him, to offer to retrieve the body of Christ and bury it with honor and respect. Nicodemus declared to the world that he was a believer in Jesus. No longer hiding in the cover tell you, it starts in that recognition of your position before a holy God. In repentance, Jesus called people to repent, and that's what we do every night that we gather. We call you to repent of your sins. To recognize the offense, the rebellion, the transgressions that you have committed, not just to yourself and to the people around you, but to us. Cosmic treason. And we invite you, like every night that we meet, to come and repent. To come and believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
Listen, like I said in the beginning of the sermon, if you feel like you're in the middle of, of this whole work of salvation, you feel like God has been drawing you, calling you, opening your heart to the truth of his, and you've been searching and trying to figure out for yourself what it all means. Let me tell you what it is right now. You are a sinner bound for hell unless you repent and put your faith in the Holy Son of God, Jesus Christ, and what he accomplished on the cross on your behalf so that you might have eternal life. invite you, if you have not yet already. Romans 10 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I invite you to call on him this evening. To say before a holy God, I know I'm a sinner. Save me. Put my faith, my belief, my trust you have done through Jesus Christ. Again, for by grace you, are, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. You can't do enough good to save yourself. It's not Jesus plus works. It's only Jesus. He is enough. God and Heavenly Father, we recognize once again our position before you, a holy God. That apart from you, we have nothing, we have nothing good. Your word says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. Lord, we recognize again that if it were not for righteousness of your son we could not stand justified before your throne and so God we glorify you, we praise you I pray that you would return to us the joy of our salvation that we would live in the good news of the gospel knowing that we are free from the bondage of sin that because of your salvific work, regenerating our hearts, we can now choose righteousness. Now we, we can now follow you. And we have eternal life now in you, Lord Jesus. I pray for the hearts that are seeking you. I pray for the hearts that you have been working in. I pray that this would be the night, a day of salvation, oh God they would choose you this day. They would take responsibility for their sin and come in repentance and put their faith in what you have done, Lord Jesus. God, we say that we love you. And we praise you, O God. We trust that you have moved amongst your people. We pray these things in Jesus, your mighty name. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, 
please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.